Father, we need you to answer that prayer for us as we come to your word now. We need you to make yourself our vision. Our vision is full of other things, things that are going on in our own lives, things that are going on in our own hearts. There is plenty to think about. There is plenty to envision. But you are much greater than our lives, and you are much greater than anything that's going on in our own hearts. You are much greater than any small God we've been serving this week. You are much greater than us. You are our great king. We do pray that you would rule in our heart by your word. We give you thanks that by your spirit we know that you are ever with us. And Father, you are our great treasure. Indeed, in Christ we have all the treasure that we need. And so we pray that with the Apostle Paul we could say to live is Christ and to die is gain. We're eager to see him. We're eager to serve him by your grace until we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, take your copy of God's Word with me and open up to the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis, chapters 46 and 47 today. We won't read all of chapters 46 and 47 to begin, just part of chapter 46, but we will make our way through the entire chapter before we're done. Mistakes. I took on a home project this past month. The kids and I threw up some paint on the walls I don't do a whole lot of this kind of stuff. One evidence to me that I need to do more of this kind of thing was when I told the children we would be painting the garage. Immediately, two of them escaped to the bedroom to return with paintings that they had done uh, in school. So various rainbows and such. And I thought, I just need to paint more walls in my house. This is a home improvement product project. We won't be doing any murals. And so we, uh, they were very helpful. We, we painted it network gray, a great paint color for your garage if you need to paint your garage. Bought a circular saw. My son and I installed some brackets and shelves around the space, and it's, it's working out well enough so far. One thing you would notice if you were to visit my near-finished garage at this point uh, is a stack of boards. Not too many, uh, but a noticeable number of boards where I, I cut at one length, but I got the measurement wrong. Or I cut a row of shelves, you know, three deep, and then I thought, "Mm, I want them to be a little bit longer, and so I just went and got more boards. And so there's this little pile of boards, which was my my, uh, working it out as I went pile. I don't have much use for them uh, at this point. Uh, There was a good amount of trial and error, and I I expected that. Uh, Some of these were just simply mistakes. Mistakes in the plan... Some of these were mistakes in the execution of the plan, the carrying out of the plan. I made adjustments along the way, repurposed some boards, and it's all working out just fine in the end. My goals were clear. Anything that can be overhead is going to be overhead. Anything that can't be overhead that can be on the wall is going to be on the wall. We will get both cars in that garage, and we will be opening and shutting doors in that garage. Do you ever wonder if God's plan is like that, though? A clear goal, but a series of mistakes and solutions along the way. And maybe that's why you're here this morning, but you're not with Christ this morning. This book, this Bible is ancient, rich, and insightful, yes. It has given hope to millions, yes. But isn't it filled with every imaginable kind of disaster? The end product looks great, but is our pain really a part of God's plan? How do we know that our suffering is not just one of his 
mistakes? Well, if you're asking those kinds of questions, you're not alone. In fact, the first readers of Genesis may well have been asking those kinds of questions. 400 years in Egypt didn't seem like God's perfect plan for their lives. And so we come to a passage that is meant to address God's people in a previous era concerning the question of their suffering many hard years. And there is transference into our lives as God's people in this age and our suffering in our age. Let's begin by reading Genesis chapter 46, verses 1 through 27. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there. I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob sent out for Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now, these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanok, Pilu, Hezron, and Camri, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hemuel. The sons of Ishgar, Tula, Puva, Yab, Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Zered, Elon, and Jeliel. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paddan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Together his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shunai, Esbon, Arai, Ardai, and Areli, uh, the sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Ishvi, excuse me, Bariah, with, with Sirai, their sister, and their sons, Bariah, Heber, and Mel- Melchiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupin, Hupin, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Nephtali, Jezel, Guni, Gezer, Jezer, and Shelem. 
These were the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob, who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob, who came into Egypt, were 70. Well, how do we know that our suffering is not God's mistake? Or we'll put it this way for our purposes this morning. Here's the question. How do we know that our pain is a part of God's, God's plan? Uh, this will not be a whole theology of suffering in the Christian life and in God's plan. There's always a desire on my part to develop these things much farther, to round things out and to seal off certain questions. And if this matter of pain in the Christian life and in God's plan is, is a puzzle to you, this sermon will address this from a text. Um, but just hang on and keep showing up to church and keep, keep an open mind and keep your ear down to the Scriptures as God, text by text across the Bible year on year, Lord's Day on Lord's Day, will shape your vision of himself and his plan in your own life in light of eternity and the resurrection and the coming of Jesus by his word. But I trust this passage will have its way with us in its own place in the story of Scripture with the time that we'll give it today. How do we know that our pain is a part of God's plan? Well, this passage with the rest of chapters 46 and 47 gives the first readers five assurances. And these assurances are good for us as well. How do we know that our suffering is not God's mistake? Well, first, because he says so. Because he says so. Verses 1 through 4 is the focus of our attention here. Verses 1 through 4 bring us into an encounter between God and Jacob. Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the focus of God's plans and saving purposes. God did not show up every day to these patriarchs, um, not hardly. Jacob heard from God, but only many, many years earlier. In fact, it's notable that in this Joseph narrative, this is the first time, and we're many chapters deep, that God shows up and speaks. He's spoken indirectly through dreams to Joseph, and we've watched that, but he hasn't spoken to any of the patriarchs, and here God finally speaks only less directly than he has, more directly now than he has in the dreams previous. God didn't show up every day. Sometimes we think maybe they were just talking to God constantly. No, it's recorded when when he spoke to them. We don't have reason to think that he showed up more frequently than we're told. But when he showed up, he did so. Most often, we notice at night. It occurs to me, if you want my attention, probably need to talk to me at night. There's enough going on during the day. Uh, it's not that they were always so busy, but that this was an opportune time to address, address a person and his people. I wonder if these men put their head down and wondered if the Lord would visit them that night, or would he visit me this night? And then you, you go to sleep. Consider that it is an astonishing thing that, that God would visit in personal way with a man like this. The God who made the world and everything in it and also the stars here comes to a man. Comes all the way down to a man at night. Jacob. Jacob. Sometimes I wake my second youngest who's napping pretty well now because she's, she's awake and, and stirring and it's time to get her up from her nap. And sometimes 
It's just time to get her up to keep her on schedule. And yesterday I went in the room, Nora, Nora. And her eyes opened up and looked at me like she was in the middle of some dream. I have no idea what baby dreams are like. But in any case, I had startled her. She wasn't expecting me. I have to wonder what Jacob, what Jacob experienced as he opens his eyes. He's told he's given a vision here. This is in the course of his, his night uh, sleep. Jacob, Jacob, here I am. His first words to Jacob are personal. He says Jacob's name, and he says Jacob's name twice. That is not beneath God, the greatest being there is, of course, the origin of everything, uh, the one who gives to every family its name. It is not beneath him to say a man's name. Well, what would God say this time on this visit? Well, kind of what he has said before. He identified himself to Jacob. Verse 3, I am God, the God of your father. That neither Jacob nor we need a word from our subconscious. We don't need a word from ourselves or just anyone. We need a word from our creator. And not just our creator, but our creator and covenant Lord. These words are personal to Jacob, but they're also covenantal. They're in the context of a relationship that Jacob has with God because Jacob is with Abraham. And Jacob is from Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's plans and purposes, his saving purposes for a new humanity run through Abraham and his family. These words are personal. These words are, are covenantal. God identifies them as the God of your father, and that is significant. This tucks in everything that is about to happen, everything that is about to hurt, underneath the umbrella of everything God has said to Abraham and to Isaac and to himself, Jacob, previously, the Lord identified himself. Well, after identifying himself, what's the first thing he says to Jacob? Verse 3, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. This is a specific word concerning Jacob's specific situation. Jacob apparently is afraid to leave. God's word here is timely. It's personal, it's covenantal, it's timely. What, do you, what might he have been afraid to go down to Egypt for? The last two trips to Egypt, we might understand. Uh, the first trip to Egypt, you remember we're in a set of chapters where we're bouncing back and forth between Canaan and Egypt in the context of a famine and the grain is running out and the brothers are headed to, to Egypt and back uh, in the course of buying grain and such. Well, now they're all headed to Egypt because Joseph has called them to Egypt. Well, the first trip, they didn't know anyone there, presumably. The second trip, they knew this guy. They didn't know him by the name of Joseph, but Pharaoh's guy had accused him of being spies. It was the only way they were going to get more to eat, and so they're headed back. Fear and trepidation, understandable. But this time, this third time they're going to Egypt, why, why the fear? They're leaving a land that is running dry, that is, that is uh, marked by severe famine, and they're headed to Egypt where... Joseph is. You would think it would be all great to go to Egypt. Why is Jacob afraid? Well, here's why. God's promise to him previously and this path that he is now set on appear to be in conflict with one another. And that's troubling. I take it he's not so much afraid of going to Egypt as he is of leaving Canaan. Remember, God came to Abraham and said, go to a land I will show you. And he led the people of God to 
Canaan. Jacob's in Canaan. He's in the land of promise, and now he's going to leave and go to Egypt. This is not a comfortable leadership moment for Jacob. Remember what God had said to Jacob years earlier. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Remember the covenant Lord? The land on which you lie, I will give you into your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised you. And Jacob wasn't expecting this. He had just tricked his brother out of his birthright. He was headed to Uncle Laban's house. He puts his head down on the ground on a rock. This happens. And he sees, you remember, a vision of a ladder into heaven with angels descending and ascending up and down. God is saying, I'm working behind the scenes. This vision's going to go away, but I continue my work. And everything I said, I will do. And Jacob says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. This vision has framed his life. It's compelled him. Oh, he's a sinner, and he hasn't had the hope and encouragement and confidence he should have had at every, at every point. But this vision frames the whole story of Jacob's life, and he hasn't, he hasn't forgotten it. And for that reason, he's afraid to leave Canaan. God's promised to be with him wherever he goes, but he promised to give him the land. Now he's going to walk out. Remember what he said at night to Isaac before him. I am the God of your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. And remember what he said to Abraham also at night. His grandfather, fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Look to heaven, number the stars. So shall your offspring be. To your offspring I will give this land. Jacob is in Canaan with his family, and he's reluctant to leave, and we can get it. Isn't that where God would fulfill his promises? God is saying by coming to Jacob now, my plan is the long way home. It's a personal word. It's covenantal. It's timely, and it's also consistent. Here's what he says. Verse 3, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Why not? For there, there I will make you into a great nation. Oh, I myself will go with you to Egypt. Good news. And I will also bring you up again. Even better news. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. A personal comforting word to a man who needed to hear it. Those words are consistent with what God had said to Abraham And now maybe it's starting to click for Jacob. Remember what God said to Abraham in Genesis 15. Know for certain that your offspring, his offspring he said he would have, will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And they shall come back here to Canaan in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. There was always more to God's plan for Abraham and his family than a move to Canaan, 
but a move out of Canaan for some 400 years and then back. There was always more to God's plan than this one straight line to the promised land. There would be 400 years of hardship and the nation would know it firsthand. Is this pain a part of God's plan? Yes, this is not a mistake. This famine, this move to Egypt is a part of God's plan. And to read this on the other side of the Exodus, looking back, would shed a certain light on all that had happened. The first assurance, God says so. He said so long before that famine had come. How else can we know that our pain is a part of God's plan as we listen into this story for for that people? Well, a second assurance. He knows how to count. God knows how to count. Verses 5 through 27 is the focus of our attention here. We move from a word stating his divine intentions now to a number confirming his attention, his intentions. You'll need to follow me here. What does this list of names mean for you and me, brothers and sisters? When I see a list of names like this, I think that, uh, that God and to God, we aren't just numbers to him, and I thank God for that. You can thank God for that. I'm not just a number to him, and you are not just a number to him. He is good at names, much better than the best of our elders, and we have some elders that are very good at names. I hope that your name is known here. Stay long enough. Your name will be known here, and I pray by, by many. This list tells me that uh, he cares. He cares about every one of his people, and he's letting us know that. So when you read a list of names like this, however hard some of them, some of them are, it is a different language, um, take courage, encouragement that God cares for individual sheep, and he knows them by name. Well, in the second place, this list of names is an indication of a stage of completion. It's an indication of a stage of completion. Verse 6, they also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him. See that? Then verse 7, his sons, his sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring He brought with him into Egypt. They were all accounted for. They were all there. 33, 16 persons, 7 persons. There's counting going on. Everyone is accounted for. It indicates a kind of completion of God's work as he has brought them now into a new place. Altogether, none left behind. But this completion points us yet to something else. Verse 27, and the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were, how many? Two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70s. 70s. So that apparently is the total at the end of that list. But if you're counting right, you might be scratching your head. This is one of those passages that, is, that attracts attention because of a, an apparent error in in the math. It's one of the passages we might be tempted to be embarrassed about. It's one of the passages that might have stopped and stalled you up in your story of growing to trust the Bible, and you may not even be all the way there yet. This kind of thing may be a bother to you. There are other puzzles like this in the Bible. We don't need to be afraid of these things. Um, But what I'm about to show you should increase your confidence that God's Word is true. 
Um, so just follow me here. We're looking at one little instance. So reading along, we read, they're all 70, and that might not bother us too much. The numbers do add up to 70, but not 70 who make the journey. And that's the problem, because it says, basically, it's, it's those who are making the journey. Two died in Canaan. And Joseph and Ephraim and Manasseh are already in Egypt. So that's 65. And if you add Dinah, you get 66 would be the total that actually make the journey. He said so in verse 26, 66 persons in all, not 70. But then if you look at Exodus chapter 1, don't turn there, but just to to indicate this to you, we read this. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. He lists 70, but he includes, excludes, excuse me, Jacob. The descendants of Jacob were 70. Excluded is Jacob. If, if all the people were going into Egypt in Genesis were 70, including Jacob, how can his descendants be 70? This seems inexact. But then Deuteronomy 10.22 includes Jacob. Quote, your father went down to Egypt Seven, your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. There was three little instances that we might think, oh, like, not a, not a big deal. Um, but the Bible's counting numbers, even in this exact passage we've got. Why can't we just get the right? No, authors didn't catch their own error, or editors smooth things out later. That's also a good question. Wouldn't they? Fix the error? Is Moses so dull? How did this not get cleaned up? Are we the first ones to notice some problems in the math? I don't think you need a calculator to get this math right. So we have numbers that are contradictory, but then we have a manuscript record that has been preserved in exactly this way, from the original writers to its oral tradition to editors to its transcription over time. Well, there's a consensus among commentators that makes perfect sense to me. One puts it this way, there's no way of satisfactorily solving the problem and reconciling the differences unless 70 is understood to be a typological, that is a matter of pattern, rather than a literal number. It is here used as elsewhere in biblical literature to express an idea of totality. It reiterates in another way the point made in verses 1, 6, and 7, expressing the comprehensive nature of the descent to Egypt because this event is seen as the fulfillment of Genesis 15, 13, where it was promised they would be leaving. This is a momentous event. They're all there, in other words. In other words, this purpose, the purpose of the 70 isn't so much a literal accounting of exact numbers as much as it is a literary marker as to what God is doing. But let me, let me add another layer, layer to this. 70 isn't just a round number that's convenient in this case. There's actually a mirror to this. It should not surprise us that if we were to wind the the pages back and flip them back earlier in our our series through Genesis and land in Genesis chapter 10, where we have the table of nations, that record of the nations spread throughout all the earth after Babel, 
that that number of families representing the whole of humanity spread throughout the earth after Babel would come to 70. And so it does. In other words, this is more than a number to show God cares or a number to indicate completion. It's a number, in this case, God's people are 70. It's a number to indicate God's advancement of another stage in his new creation. Yes, they're leaving Canaan, but this is God's reconstituted humanity. All of humanity's 70 families spread throughout the earth after Babel. Now, God has come to one man, Abraham, and promised him that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him, and they are now 70 persons entering into the land. I think that's how the first hearers would have heard this, an echo of the table of nations, an indication of the completion of this stage in God's plan, an indication of the new creation he was bringing about in this new people. The world is starving for lack of food, but worse from alienation from God. This crew of 70 is the seed for a people that will bring blessing to the world and reconciliation to God. That is the significance of this beautiful, symmetrical, there are other points of symmetry, list of names that lands on the number 70. Is it any surprise then that when we get to Revelation, that famous number, 144,000, divided by seven is 20,571.4286, which when you add up each of those numbers equals 35, which is divisible by seven? Thank you for laughing, a few of you. I only, I did that math and thought, that's cool, I'm going to say that, but there's nothing to it. Absolutely nothing to it. Too much can be made of numbers, so beware. We have to ground our interpretation of these kinds of things in clear enough, straightforward patterns in Scripture, answering for ourselves the question, what did Moses mean and what would the hearers have heard? And that's my case, that 70 isn't just, it isn't just the number of people that made it in. It isn't even just a round number. It isn't even merely an indication of completion, although it is, but it is itself an indication that this is God's new humanity, God's reconstituted humanity making its way into Egypt. A little more on that into Egypt line before we're done, but be careful with numbers. I have heard exactly those kinds of things before. I could link to some videos for you. How do the Israelites know that Egypt wasn't a mistake? How do we know that our pain is a part of God's plan? Well, he said so. He gave us a word. Uh, He can count. He gave us a number, a subtle literary marker along the way as he's weaving together his beautiful, perfect plan. And third, third, chapter 46, verse 28 through 27, 10, he can write. The Lord can write. Friends, look at the story that we have here. Even in these verses, we have some incredible moments. This isn't just a book filled with names and places and promises. This is a book filled with names and places and promises and divinely inspired, directed, ironic history. In this section, we have three meetings 
three ironic encounters and a taste of what we find in this Bible from cover to cover. Meeting number one, Jacob meets Joseph. Verse 28, he had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel with his, uh, his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. The language of presentation here uh, is used in other cases of how God shows up. It's with regal glory. It's with splendor. He is dressed in all the garb of his office in Egypt. He grabs his chariot. He is assembled with his people and he, he comes. Jacob was presented with a coat so many years ago. Joseph's coat with long sleeves. You remember he gave his son Joseph that coat with long sleeves as, as a nod to his royal expectations for his youngest son and his, his favorite. And it was covered in blood when it was presented to him by his sons. Jacob was presented with Joseph's coat as a sign that he was dead. And now here, Joseph presents himself to his father in all of his living, regal, royal glory. Joseph has his chariot. He has his garb. He is impressive. His presentation is overwhelming. And he is saying, I'm alive. And because I'm alive, you too will live. The juxtaposition of that memory of being handed Joseph's coat and now encountering Joseph in his regal glory is not to be missed. And get this, Judah, who led in the sale of Joseph to travelers who would end up in Egypt, brings them back together. That's meeting number one. Meeting number two, now the brothers meet Pharaoh. Joseph coached them in the verses just following the ones we just read. Joseph coached them on what they need to say to Pharaoh. Um, you see uh, God's people, uh, the Hebrews were shepherds. And Joseph's interest was that his people would be together and not mixed with those who are outside of the people of God, the Egyptians, and so spoil the project of God's redeeming work in his people. How would he do this? Would he be prescriptive with Pharaoh and telling him all that was behind his intentions? Uh, in this case, he simply instructed his brothers, uh, you need to tell Pharaoh that you're shepherds. You need to emphasize that you're shepherds. You're shepherds. And his expectation was that Pharaoh would then give them the land of Goshen Pharaoh's good intentions and his goodwill toward Joseph and his family would mean otherwise that he likely would put them in a good place in the middle of the action and they would in the years to come become mixed in with the Egyptians. But Pharaoh's goodwill, if this matter of the shepherd nature of his people was emphasized, would mean that Pharaoh would intuit that he should not put them with the town dwellers. 
The Egyptians despised shepherds. Why? It's the same old elitist city dweller and rural person thing that happens in every civilization we've got. And in this case, the Egyptians despised the rural folk. They despised the shepherds. Tell Pharaoh that you're shepherds. And as a consequence, he expects he will give him the land of Goshen. Why does Joseph not say, ask for Goshen? Why does Joseph not ask for Goshen? Well, he must intuit from what he knows of Pharaoh that this just isn't something you want to be so direct about. Maybe it would undermine the project of landing that plot of land and being on their own. In any case, he's coached his brothers along these lines. Emphasize that you're shepherds. Now we have the meeting. Verse 1 in chapter 27, 47. Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Goshen at this time was a placeholder. It was a holding pattern place. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? There it is. And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds uh, as our fathers were. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers In the best of the land, let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Close call. Proof to everyone involved, maybe mostly to Joseph, that the Lord is indeed with them. Joseph knew how this operation worked. And they have landed, even fumbling as they did, talking too much as they did, Exactly that place he wanted for them. They sold Joseph to traitors who would take him out of the land. And now they will be preserved by Joseph in this land. The sale of Joseph leads to salvation for the whole family. Let that not be missed on you. God can write a story. Now the third meeting. Jacob and Pharaoh, Jacob and Pharaoh, Pharaoh, the illustrious king of Egypt, Jacob, the frail patriarch of the embryonic nation, Israel by his name, numbering some 70. How is this going to go? Who will be the alpha? Verse seven, then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, And stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the day of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh.
Jacob is the Alpha. Jacob is the one blessing this king of the world, basically. A no-name from a no-name people. Surely an indication to every party involved that just as God promised to Jacob in the night, that he is with them in Egypt. Surely a confirmation to the first readers of this story, having been delivered from Egypt, that all along, yes, even from the beginning, God was with them. In his youth, in his strength, Jacob cheated out of his brother a blessing for himself, selfishly. In his old and frail age and in his weakness, Jacob gives a blessing to Pharaoh, if you will, a blessing for the nations. And how can you not see in shadow form the fulfillment of God's promise in an early installation, albeit incomplete, that he would bless all the families of the earth through one from Abraham's line. How do we know that our pain is a part of God's plan? Well, he says so. He can count. Gives us a number. He can write. This story is filled with divinely inspired ironies of history. And fourth, he preserves. He can keep his own. Verses 11 through 27. Consider how bad things had gotten. And Follow with me how things went. Verse 13. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So Joseph is a steward of Pharaoh in Egypt, administering a certain plan for the care and the provision of the people of Egypt. And now as the the famine is squeezing the land and everything out of it, that plan is applied, and this is how it goes. They've spent all their money now buying up grain from uh, their leaders in Egypt. Verse 15 now, And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes, for our money is gone? And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock, if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, flocks and herds and donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. So now they're they're supplied with food. They've had to mortgage or sell all of their Their livestock, verse 18 now, gets worse. And when that year was ended, so a whole year has gone by, it is rough. They came to him the following year and said, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. Herds and livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left inside of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die by your eyes, both we and your land, our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we will with our land be servants to Pharaoh." And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, and all the Egyptians sold their fields, because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's, 
As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Verse 23, then Joseph said to the people, behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you. Go and sow in the land. And at the harvest, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh and four fifths shall be your own as seed for the field, as a food for yourselves and your households, as the food for your little ones. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants of Pharaoh. And so this is how the world was saved. Look at Joseph. What is he doing? He can get a bad rap for this plan. I'm saying that he was merely administrating the plan under Pharaoh. As it is, uh, we don't make a one-to-one with the kind of slavery or servitude that we see here and the kind that has marked our own nation's past. Slavery was a way the destitute would be taken care of in many cases by a benevolent master. Think of Joseph with Potiphar chapters before. Hebrew law itself allowed for this kind of thing. If someone was, was bankrupt, this was how they would take care of themselves and be taken care of. And after six years, they could go free and often they would, would prefer what we might call indentured servanthood or tenured employment would be a, maybe a closer one-to-one. You can think of the free man was the self-employed person. You were more free, but you also had more, more risk. There was a certain security when this was, was done right. What I'm saying is there's no need to see Joseph as administrating a crooked, wicked plan. He was not sowing the seeds for or designing what would become harsh slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt. It's just they were likely never applied these rules on such a large scale and the circumstances were never this incredible either. But see here that Joseph is savior of the world. A Hebrew born of Abraham is the hope of the world. Hardly all God has in mind, but hardly incidental. Remember what Joseph said. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life and this indeed is part of God's plan for his people. That's what God is doing. But he is doing it in a deeper, in a better way than this, than what merely appears to us on the surface. So look with me at the people. What are they doing? What's happening all around? Severe famine, a natural disaster that will strip the world all around them of life. And they are going into, and they have entered into a place of safety. Twice in this text today, in a a concise paragraph that we've read earlier, we read the, the terms into Egypt, and they went into Egypt, all the fathers and sons and and everyone with them, all the offspring went into Egypt. I want to read a paragraph for you from Genesis chapter. Six, which forms the literary backdrop for this moment. Speaking to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you and you will come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, the birds according to their kinds and the animals, and he goes on, into the ark, into the ark, everyone with you. One disaster with water, 
to destroy the earth, another one for lack of water that is starving the earth. And God has preserved his people in both. In the first case, Noah goes into the ark with the people of God in very small form. And here, by virtue of these echoes in this paragraph, we see that God is putting his people, if you will, into the ark of Egypt to preserve life. How do we know that God means a purpose in our pain? Well, in the first case, he says so. He can count. He sure can write, can't he? The history of the people of God is the history of God preserving his people in incredible circumstances, and so he has here. And finally, he gets his people home. Verses 28 through 31. Jacob, we've seen, has had a terribly hard life. His flight to Mesopotamia, his daughter was raped, his dear wife died, his son was apparently dead or so he thought for so many years and now he's being carried about and he says his life's been dim and dark and hard. But he has a light in his eyes today. He sees Joseph and meets Joseph, verse 28, and Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. And so the days of Jacob, the years of his life were 147 And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I've found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. And Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed, and we'll see Jacob die in the chapters ahead. Jacob was carried to Egypt, and he was carried to Pharaoh, and now he asks to be carried home for burial. What does it matter if he's dead? Well, his hope is in the promises of God. All the action is back in Canaan. And seeing Joseph has transformed his outlook on the rest of his life and even on his death. Recall that Jacob has spoken about his death before, and maybe you can relate. He's spoken about his death before, and when he has done so, he's spoken in gloomy, dark, and hopeless terms. No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. He expected to live a life of mourning and to die sad. This moment is different. Jacob is different. His outlook now, after so many years and engagements with him, is different. And why is it different? Because he has met Joseph. He is ready to meet death. And so it is for us, for those who have seen the face of the greater Joseph in the scriptures, who is himself the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why we can say with the apostle Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jacob's life has been transformed by an encounter with a vision before his eyes of the promises of God on their way to fulfillment. And in scripture, we see a vision of Jesus Christ risen from the dead and we encounter the fulfillment of God's promise, if you will, face to face. And it's on us right now by the Spirit. And one day we will see him face to face when he comes and that project of salvation will be fully complete. Friends, make no mistake. Our Lord Jesus and his cross 
is proof positive that God makes no mistakes. And surely Jacob was saying that in his heart in this moment with his youngest son. He will bring Jacob out. The Lord will bring Israel out of Egypt in his time 400 years from now. He will carry them and he will bring us out of our Egypt as well. There is no trial and error in God's plan. There are only trials in the course of God's plan on the way to the glorious end that he has designed. And in Jesus, we have met, to use Jacob's words, the very gate of heaven. And in the cross of Christ and in his resurrection, we can look at our circumstances. We can live in our Egypt, as it were, and say, nope, the angels are running up and down the ladder of heaven. God is at work behind the scenes. He is even at work in us this very day. Which brings us to this table that rests before us. This table where we have some bread and where we have a cup that the Lord Jesus, face to face with his disciples in human form, gave them hope. And they were starting to realize even more who they were with. And we realize even all the more who they were with. And he's with us this morning. And this, this table looks back to what Jesus has done on the cross. From our vantage point, it looks back. From Israel's vantage point, it looked forward. One day, a Passover lamb would be slain for the forgiveness in shadow form of the sins of the people. And they would look forward to the day when a greater lamb would be slain to take away all of their sins. Well, we look back to the cross of Christ where Jesus, his body was broken and his blood was shed, represented in these elements where Jesus takes away our sins. But Jesus did more than that at the occasion of this meal. This meal isn't just a meal of remembrance, but it's a meal of anticipation as he promised that he will return again. And so we eat this meal on sober reflection of our own sin and and what happened on the cross, but it isn't only sobriety that brings us to the table concerning our sin, but anticipation of the return of Jesus Christ himself when we will drink this cup anew with him in his kingdom. And so in a few moments, we'll be singing some songs as we eat, and they'll be brighter than we usually sing as we meditate on the cross, but they are meditations on the cross and its accomplishment nevertheless. Those men who are serving with me this morning, you can come now. I've shared a bit about the elements and what they represent, the bread and the cup. I need to say that this is a table for those who belong to the Lord Jesus by faith. Those who can say that they're in Abraham's family by faith. This is a table set for those who belong to Jesus. And if you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, to belong to the Lord Jesus, then you should not partake right now, but but watch and pray for God to open your eyes and to bring you to his table by faith. And maybe you'll join us the next time. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for this bread by which we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross and his body broken for us. And we remember that this bread is not just a representation of Jesus' body broken for us on the cross to take away our sins, but the very answer to the problem of death itself. As Jesus raised from the dead, was raised victorious, not only over our sins, but over death itself, so that we have a living hope in him. And we thank you for what we remember as we look at this bread, even as we anticipate his returns. In Christ's name we pray, amen.